Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. My guest today is Dr. Michael Engs. He's a co-owner of Arizona Heritage Tours, offering tours, lectures, performances, and other historical events. You can find out more at azheritagetours.com. He's also a volunteer with the Tucson Presidio Trust. He strives to bring the history of black people and their extensive contributions to the settlement of the Southwest to a broader audience. Welcome. Thank you, Amanda, for inviting me. I understand you've been uncovering more history about this time and this region. Yes, since last we talked, uh, the stories of uh, African-based people here in the Southwest, especially in southern Arizona, have just begun to proliferate. Uh, We have uh, probably... 10 to 15 stories that we tell now uh, through Arizona Heritage Tours, and we're trying to do performance events so we can bring those stories to life and make them more interesting, especially for children. And uh, we are also doing uh, lectures and uh, other events just to help people understand this history better. How did you first get interested in history? Oh, that's a long story. I won't tell it all. I actually grew up in Williamsburg, Virginia. So my first job out of high school at 14 was as a historical interpreter. And surprisingly, it's the exact same period I'm talking about now, 1700s. Explain to us how stories become unearthed, untold stories are brought to life. I always look for a firsthand account. I want somebody to tell me that somebody was at a certain place at a certain time doing a certain thing. And if they can be African-American, that makes me even more excited because I think they're uh, underrepresented in a lot of historical texts and documents, especially here in the Southwest. Stories of Africans are... That is the correct term, because remember, this was New Spain at yeah, the time. It wasn't. It was no long, It wasn't really America yet. It didn't Africa. become America till the 1800s with the Gadsden Purchase and the Spanish-American War. So we're really talking about Spanish history, and I think that's why a lot of people justify not teaching this in schools, is it's not really American history, it's Spanish history. Well, so much of our, you know, so much of our history here in the Southwest really predates the American presence. And there was such a mixed group of people here that I find fascinating because people from the conquest of 1519 with Cortez were migrating northwards from that day on. And we know that one of the first people to cross the border that is now Arizona and Mexico was actually an African person. His name was Esteban. We have very good detail of his story. A lot of books written about him. There's an exhibit at the Tucson Presidio Trust Museum on him right now, along with other people of, of African descent and history. So, uh, you know, I think it's, it's important for us to represent people uh, equally in terms of our history in Southern Arizona, because at the Presidio, we tend to talk about a culture of cooperation where people had to survive by working together. They were interdependent on each other. You can't build chapels. You can't build presidios. You can't plant gardens like mission gardens and feed yourself. And you can't protect yourself against uh, more hostile groups unless you cooperate together. And so I think it's really important for us to talk about the cooperative spirit that really was the founding of Tucson. What are some of the stories that you have been discovering about that time period? I think the most exciting thing is that we're starting to discover stories about women. Obviously, history is about men primarily and wars and violence. But what we're unearthing now through our research, through Arizona Heritage Tours, uh, along with my partner, Andre Newman, is stories of women's lives. 
I found a wonderful story about a young woman, probably in her teens, named Isabel de Olvera, who walked from what is now northern Mexico all the way to Santa Fe in 1600. And we know she left because it's in the court records, and we know she made it because her name is on the documents of the people who arrived in Santa Fe that year. So we've actually done a performance around her story. Uh, we tell also the story of uh, another lady named Maria Feliciana Arbeo. To me, she's one of the most fascinating people of Southern Arizona history because she probably was the first uh, African woman to go to California. Her story is, is probably so fascinating because she would have walked from Tubac, Arizona, to uh, California in 1775, a year before the Declaration of Independence, with her two daughters in tow. And they had to walk all the way because there weren't enough horses for everybody. But, you know, her story really begins probably in Culiacan, because ever since the conquest, African-based people who had been freed through their military service married either Native women or other African women who they bought out of slavery were moving further and further north from central Mexico. And about 1700s, we see a trend in which these people were escaping the sugarcane industry and the increase in the slave trade in Mexico. And so in Culiacan, Sinaloa, areas like that, there were a lot of African-based people and still are uh, large communities in Oaxaca of Mexico of African-based people. And they go back hundreds of years. Now, in this particular instance, Maria Feliciano Arbeo was married to a soldier who was killed probably earlier that year by uh, in an Indian attack. And they were probably moving north from uh, Sinaloa and Culiacan because during that period of the early 1700s, there had been a succession of two hurricanes and probably a plague, probably cholera. And so those people had nothing. And they were moving further north instead of going back into the slave trade of the south in order to find new lives. And they ended up, many of them, in Tubac. We know that one of the f four soldiers of African descent, of the 27 who founded Tucson, because remember, 1775 was an amazing, amazing year in Arizona history. In uh, August of 1775, Colonel Hugo O'Connor, an Irishman who was in the Spanish Army, rode north from Tubac to found the Presidio of Tucson. Of the 27 soldiers that rode with him, four were of African descent. We know one of them by name. His name was Francisco Javier Marquez. And we think that perhaps Maria Feliciana Arbeo was also a refugee from the Culiacan, Sinaloa area because of those uh, devastating natural events. And interestingly enough, the commander of the Tubac garrison, Juan Batista Anza, had gone up to San Francisco. The Spanish were very concerned that the English and the Russians were coming down from the north because of the fur trade, and they needed forts to protect their territory. And the furthest north they had gotten to at that point was probably Santa Fe, New Mexico, which had been founded in the 1600s. So they wanted a fort probably around Monterey Bay. He left a contingent of soldiers there. But on the journey, and on the journey returning to Tubac, he realized they're not going to stay up there without a community. They're always going to, they're going to desert, they're going to come back, something's going to happen. So I have to bring them a community. So he arrived back here in fall of 1775. This is uh, Juan Batista Anza. And he found these refugees, probably from Sinaloa, Culiacan, who really had no place to go. 
and he promised them, along with, uh, there were actually 300 people altogether, a third of them were of African descent, and he promised them clothing, food, land, uh, if they would go to the area that we now call San Francisco. And he asked them only one thing, never come back. You will have to stay there. Many of them said, no problem, uh, I'm on. And so they began in October of 1775 to march north towards San Francisco. They actually marched south first because of the Indian threat and began to uh, then head north. And in December of 1775, they would have crossed the Colorado River near Yuma. Uh, the Indians who were there at the time probably broke them up into three groups and some, in some cases carried them across on their backs. And when they arrived in what is now California, they threw this wonderful celebration. It was December. It was near the holidays. So uh, the commander was serving brandy. And this provocative widow, Maria Feliciana Arbeo, decided to do a dance and tell stories about the journey up to that point, some of which perhaps weren't for all audiences. And the reason we know about her is because Father Fawn, the priest on the journey, basically didn't like it and wrote it, her up in his diary. So we still have that firsthand account that I talked about earlier of what she did. And so what we're trying to capture is that particular story of Maria Feliciana Arbeo and her two young daughters who had the fortitude and courage to walk north to California that year. And it's a fascinating story because it belongs to women, not just men. And it's a story of taking care of children, of fortitude, of wanting to be someplace else so strongly that you're willing to do anything you have to, including walking thousands of miles. We know that she made it to California, but she probably didn't go all the way to San Francisco. She and her two daughters probably went to what is now called San Gabriel, the, that area of California. The interesting thing is that her daughters, who must have been as beautiful and as provocative as their mom, uh, ended up marrying men with the surname of Pico, and that particular surname is very, very important in California history because their sons, the daughters of Maria Feliciana Bayo and the sons of the Pico men, became governors of California. And so not only was she an amazing woman of fortitude and courage, she's really an icon in the history of California in terms of the lineage that she started on this journey. And for a mulata libre, a free black woman, in the 1700s to be able to do that and be so little known to me is just amazing. You're listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. My guest today is Dr. Michael Angs. He's co-owner of Arizona Heritage Tours, offering tours, lectures, performances, and other historical events. He's also a volunteer with the Tucson Presidio Trust. So, Amanda, what we're finding is that uh, especially young people aren't interested in these stories like the stories I grew up with. For us, these kinds of stories, these kinds of conversations were a form of entertainment. But now with so much more electronically being uh, presented to us, I think we need to put history into a new form. And so what we did in December of 2014 is we partnered, the Arizona His uh, Heritage Tours and Barbia Williams Performing Company partnered to do a performance of this particular story at the Presidio. 
and it's a wonderful, wonderful performance that captures history in a very unique way. We try to make sure we're accurate in terms of the uniforms, the costumes people wear, and the documentation of this particular character's lives. It was so well received that it's probably going to be repeated uh, this month, February 2015, on the 27th, 28th, and the 1st of March. Uh, 7 o'clock on Friday and Saturday, 2 o'clock on Sunday at the Dunbar Project. Uh, and we hope that this story will continue on because this woman was just such an amazing character in history. That story will be featured in Courage, Stepping Out of Fear, a Black History Month celebration of dance, drama, spoken word, and culture. You know, Amanda, I read this, this fascinating quote the other day. It, it reads, Preservation of one's own culture does not require contempt or disrespect for other cultures. And I'm quoting Cesar Chavez. And what I find in working with the Tucson Presidio Trust and uh, Barbia Williams Performing Company, the Tucson Museum of Art, uh, the uh, Tubac State Museum, um, and the Pima Ria Alta Museum in Nogales is that a lot of people are very moved by that whole concept of that we should be telling more about the people of the past and putting it into a performance mode so children would be more attracted to it. Because as you could see from the tape I showed you of the December 2014 event of Maria Feliciano's Arbeo's life, most of the people were probably young people in their early 20s or teens. And so we find that children are becoming very captivated by this way of presenting history, and we're hoping that we can carry it further. Because, you know, we have so many stories now. Um, as I said, our first performance, uh, which was done in October of this year, We've been very successful in Arizona Heritage Tours. We've had two exhibits at the Presidio this year, 25 total events, uh, tours. Uh, we've excited people so much that a benefactor gave us a, a several thousands of dollars as a Kickstarter grant just by going on one of our tours. And so we're really excited about this concept of helping children present their history by acting it out, giving them the, the bare bones of a story and then having them act out the rest of the story. What would have happened at that point? Who would this person have been? In October of, of 2014, we did another woman's story. The woman I uh, discovered through research I did in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, was named Isabel de Olvera, a very prominent scholar, uh, Orlando Romero, who lives in Nambe, New Mexico, was the one who gave me the, the background of this particular young lady. She probably was um, 15, 16. We know about her because of the court records of the small town she lived in in what is now northern Mexico. What she's saying is she is a free black woman, and for some reason she wants to go north to Santa Fe. We think it's because maybe there's a caravan right outside the gates of her small town, and maybe she's attracted to one of the soldiers or one of the civilians in the party, because remember they travel in groups of hundreds, maybe as many as 300 people with herds of cattle and pigs and all their goods, and they would come down from the north Santa Fe in that area with their woolen goods, trade them to people further south for medicine and silk and um, fruits and things that you couldn't get in the northern part of what it was then New Spain. And she wanted to go on this journey. The mayor is aghast, and we have a scene uh, that we present in which she's talking to the mayor about her right to go on this journey. Very dramatic, very compelling. Uh, a young lady who's a, a very, very good actress in this town named Christina Bielen was the uh, character, uh, Maria, uh, excuse me, uh, 
Isabel de Oliveira and nailed the part. She was just so good that day. And basically, it's, again, a story of women and their fortitude. Because in the Spanish colonial period, I don't want to discount the role of men, but at the same time, the roles of women and people of color were submerged under their need to get noticed so they could get land grants, so they could get mining concessions, so they could get the things that they wanted, economidas. Um, my Spanish is not that good, but basically what the conquistadors were given were not always money and gold and silver, but the right to settle on certain properties and use those properties, though people were already living there, as part of their income. So they could build mills, flour mills, they could plant crops, they could demand certain amount of labor from the uh, residents, and from that they could become rich because they weren't getting as much from the conquest as they had hoped they would. And we think that the village that Maria Felice, uh, that Isabel de Olvera lived in was very much like that, in which maybe she was overwhelmed by the, the pressures of life and maybe an older man had approached her and wanted to marry that she didn't want to marry. We really don't know why she wanted to march north. But again, here's a story of a young woman. And I think this is very telling for young women of, of the 21st century who would walk into the unknown on her own because she had the courage to do so. And I think it's a very good lesson for young women in the 21st century to think that you can have that spirit within you. And if we tell history in the same ways we have in the past, those kinds of stories will never come out. They'll never emerge. Are there other stories that you're in the beginning of discovering? Well, to stay on, stay on the track of, uh, of young women, uh, my next script I call The Three Sisters. Now, everybody who is, knows the history of Arizona and the, and the native peoples as well as the peoples who came here with the Spanish know that The Three Sisters are really corn, beans, and squash. But I call it The Three Sisters because uh, when I was volunteering last year with the Tucson Presidio Trust for Historical Preservation, my wife and I were asked to, uh, to uh, march in the uh, San Isidro, festival, which is a planting festival. And it occurs at the end of the wheat season, so they're kind of harvesting the wheat. And I took this wonderful picture of the wife of the director of the Presidio Trust at the time, Barb Collins, a young woman named Kathleen Humphreys, who is a formerly advisor at the University of Arizona, my wife Sydney in the fields. And I immediately thought of that concept of the three sisters, because they look like three sisters dressed in 17th century, 18th century costumes. And, uh, you know, cutting the wheat and then standing there with their fruits and vegetables in their arms. And it was just such a telling image to me. I realized there's a story here somewhere, you know, because these women would have been mixed race, some of Spanish descent, some of African descent. They would have been living together in the Presidio. Their mission gardens was where they got their food. But what do they talk about? Because they were so different. And again, I go back to that concept of, it must have, despite jealousies and all kinds of things that happen with women living in such close proximity in the middle of nowhere, because remember the Presidio and San Javier del Bac mission were the only things in the valley besides smaller Indian dwellings. You could look all the way across. There were seven uh, lakes across the valley. The grass was so high it came up to the shoulder of your horse as you rode across towards the Catalinas. And so this must have been a very interesting place for people who were so different, who realized that they had to get along, though they were of different backgrounds, different classes, different castes. And so what I'd like to do is tell that story called The Three Sisters. 
is start a scene in Mission Gardens where you're seeing the three women harvesting the wheat or whatever happens to be being harvested, depending on the time of year that we film this. Have them uh, talk about what's happening to them so we can get a real feel for what women's lives were like in 1775 Tucson rather than just men. Because I think without them, as we heard in the story of Maria Feliciano Abeo, without community and women's presence, you don't have soldiers staying there. They keep moving on to the next battle, to the next war, to the next conquest. But when women take part, all of a sudden you have a community. And I think that's where we started here in Tucson. And in that community, there was, a again, a culture of cooperation. And when I first came here 40 years ago, that's what I found. Everybody was really nice to me. And every time I tried to leave to go back to Virginia, something nice would happen. And so I'm still here. I guess one of the most exciting ways to present history that we have discovered just recently is really Gene Baxter's program at the Tucson Presidio Trust for Historic Preservation. It's called Friday at the Fort Morning Muster. Uh, we've written several grants to support it. And what Gene has done is designed a whole day, a field trip for children around life in 1700s in Tucson. And what happens is the children are broken up into groups of 6 to 10. They stop at different stations, each of which represents a certain chore or event in life in the Presidio right after its founding in the 1770s. And so a child will go to a group of children will go to one station. They'll find uh, they can rope a calf. They can make uh, clay. They can uh, make tortillas. They can play games. Uh, there's just a variety of things that we're trying to represent. Most of the volunteers are in costume, so we're trying to recapture the feeling of being in 1700s Tucson. And over the last uh, two or three years, uh, this program has attracted over a 1,000 school children. We focus mostly on fourth graders. It's very well organized because Gene is just so meticulous at uh, looking at uh, how to keep children occupied. So they move every 20 minutes. Uh, my wife, Sydney, and I are very fortunate because we get to play toys and games, so we get to have as much fun as anybody there, including the kids. And for people in Tucson who would like to uh, participate in events like that, remember that uh, we also do second Saturdays at the Presidio. Uh, each second Saturday of the month, we do a Living History Day where the same volunteers come out in costume to show what life in uh, Tucson would have been right after its founding in uh, August of 1775. And it's real exciting to see how difficult life was for people of the past and how comfortable it is for us now. I think we really have uh, lack an appreciation sometimes of what people of the past did to help us be here and be so comfortable. So I'd just like to, you know, make, make sure we shout out to uh, Tucson Presidio Trust for Historic Preservation and our other uh, partners uh, and say that uh, we... Uh, meaning my partner and I, Andre Newman, uh, are extremely thankful of the wonderful support we get for trying to uh, bring light to a very little-known history of Tucson, Arizona. So there's always a, a another side of history that we want to tell, and I think that the fascination I have as, a, as primarily a researcher is, is finding those stories. Um, right now I'm reading a book called The Perfect Red, because people don't realize that red dye was extremely hard to find. And it was a very popular color, and royalty and common people loved, especially in Europe. And they couldn't get a red that was color fast. 
Well, the red that they found comes from a beetle called cochineal, which grows on the prickly pear cactus. So if you walk around Tucson, every now and then if you stop and look at a prickly pear, you'll see this little white nest all over, you know, just little ones. And inside each one is a black beetle, smaller than a BB. And if you squeeze it between your fingers, you get red. And that red became the most popular crop probably of all time because it was so valued and nobody knew where it actually came from. The Spanish government began to budget based on their cochineal production. But the conquistadors here in the in New Spain weren't interested in agricultural products. So it was basically a Native American commerce. They would basically cultivate the beetle. They found a way to take it from the wild, put it on cactus that they grew in their yards. It was very work intensive because the beetle is very delicate. A rainstorm can wipe out your whole crop of beetles. And so they would have small crops of cochineal. They'd ground it down into a paste, which was very easy to transport across many miles, and it became huge in Europe during the time. It was worth its weight in gold. And now we tell that story to, to, because we have a really nice prickly pear plant in the Presidio, and as children walk around during Friday at the fort, we'll send them over to the prickly pear and say, look, look closely, because you'll see where the perfect red comes from, the cochineal beetle, which is one of our very unique things here in Arizona, especially Tucson. Thanks for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. My guest today has been Dr. Michael Angs. He's co-owner of Arizona Heritage Tours, offering tours, lectures, performances, and other historical events. You can find out more at azheritagetours.com. He's also a volunteer with the Tucson Presidio Trust. He strives to bring the history of black people and their extensive contributions to the settlement of the Southwest to a broader audience. And you can also see him later this month. Um, he'll be bringing one of the stories to life at Courage, Stepping Out of Fear, a Black History Month celebration of dance, drama, spoken word, and culture. It's taking place the weekend of Friday, February 27th, Saturday, February 28th, and that's over at the Dunbar Cultural Center.